Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Beverly Gage, a professor of 20th century U.S. history at Yale University. Her teaching and research focus on the evolution of American political ideologies and institutions. She teaches courses on terrorism, communism and anti-communism, American conservatism, and 20th century American politics. Her first book, The Day Wall Street Exploded, a story of America in its first age of terror, examined the history of terrorism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, focusing on the 1920 Wall Street bombing. Today we talk with her about her forthcoming book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the American Century. Welcome, Professor Gage. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with an overview of your book. Tell us about it. Sure. Well, G-Man, which stands for Government Man, okay. is uh, a new big political biography of someone that I would describe as really one of the towering figures, for better or worse, mm -hmm. of 20th century American politics. So it's about former FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, um, who, as many people have pointed out over the years, was one of the longest serving public servants in the United States. So he became director of the FBI in 1924 mm -hmm. at the ripe old age of 29. Wow. And he remained in that job until 1972, so almost half a century. So it's an attempt to really grapple with Hoover, not only as the villain uh, that he's really become, I think, in the popular imagination, mm -hmm. but as a really very serious political figure, um, someone who had a pretty dramatic influence on American popular political culture mm -hmm. um, and on the shape of American government and who was someone who was in power for at least half of the 20th century. Very long time. What led you to write the book? Well, Hoover actually showed up in my first book, a book called The Day Wall Street Exploded mm -hmm. that you just mentioned, um, which was about a little-known terrorist attack on Wall Street mm -hmm. in 1920. Um, it was the biggest terrorist attack of its age, and it killed about 38 people mm -hmm. um, on a kind of ordinary work day at the corner of Wall and Broad Streets in New York. Uh, we've largely forgotten it, but at the time, it was this huge deal and this huge investigation in the very early years of the FBI. Mm -hmm. And so Hoover is not director at that point, but he's a very young man kind of working behind the scenes, beginning to think about the issue uh, on the one hand of terrorism, but more importantly at that moment of political radicalism and particularly left-wing radicalism yeah. in the United States. And so I encountered him in doing the work on that project really as a very young man. And what was striking to me was that there he is, he's in his mid-20s at mm -hmm. that point, and he uh, has not yet become the figure that we are all going to get to know, um, but he's already thinking through so many of these issues that he's going to become identified with later on, uh, namely, uh, in that case, the kind of war against communism, which so much shapes American right, politics right, in the right. 20th century. How does your book differ from the many other books out there about Hoover? 
Right. Well, there are a couple of things that I think make this book different. So Hoover is someone who has been written about obviously a great deal. I think he is still a household name for the most part, although when I talk with my students, they know they've heard of him. Mm -hmm. They're not always 100% sure which Hoover he is. Is it right? the vacuum or something? Right. Is he, so he's fading a little bit, but yes. you know, he's still enough, uh, enough of a name. So anyway, he's been written about, obviously, for a long time mm -hmm. by lots of people. But a lot of the tradition of writing about Hoover has been very much a tradition of expose. Mm -hmm. um, so most of the big biographies of Hoover have been books that are seeking to kind of expose his secrets, tell us things that people didn't know at mm -hmm. the time that he was actually in political power. Um, so that's part of what my book is as well, mm -hmm. but it's also trying to really step back from that a little bit and assess Hoover um, not only as someone who's keeping secrets, but someone who plays this very big role um, in American politics and to kind of take him from, from the fringes and this idea of him mm -hmm. as a rogue villain and really put him back at the center of our political story. So I'd say that's, that's piece one, mm -hmm. uh, trying to, to rewrite that picture of him a little bit. Uh, the second thing that the book is doing is trying to put him in conversation with really interesting work that's being done on the kind of history and evolution of American conservatism in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that work tends to kind of look at a resurgence of grassroots conservatism that begins to happen in the 60s and 70s and then ultimately comes of age with Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. and the Reagan presidency in the 80s. Um, and this is an effort to recast that a little bit and to think about someone like Hoover as uh, an ideological conservative, but an ideological conservative who holds a whole lot of state and government power through the period that we usually think about as the great age of American liberalism. Mm -hmm. So again, it's sort of recasting him in a, in a different relationship mm -hmm. with American politics than I think that we've seen before. Okay, and in doing your research, and uh, I would imagine part of the, one of the big issues is there's so much written about him, um, but you were able to uncover some things that no other historian has seen before, and also you gained access to some um, files that had never, or collections, private collections that had never been opened before. How did you, um, how did that come to pass, and, and what were some of your findings? Right. And just talk about your, your, you know, how you did the research in general. Well, uh, I'd say the blessing and the curse of mm -hmm. doing research on an institution like the FBI is that there's always more to find. So that makes it terrific mm -hmm. because there's always material out there that people haven't really looked at and haven't scrutinized in a serious way. But um, in my how, case, how is that though? How is that that no one has come to see it? If, are the files just being made um, open to the public? Is that is that the situation, or there's just so much that it's impossible for one person to go through it all? Right. Well, it's kind of a combination okay. of both. So this, the the material that's at the FBI. Um, is constantly being processed and sent to the National Archives, but we're okay. talking about millions and millions wow. of pages of material, something that no single person could possibly go through. Um, so to some degree, you can go to the National Archives and begin to look through this mm -hmm. material that's been recently released. A lot of the FBI's material, and even pretty far back historical material, even back as early as the teens and the 20s, 
Um, some of that is still at the FBI, and almost everything from the 50s, 60s, and 70s is still at the FBI and can be acquired through the Freedom of Information Act and through filing Freedom of Information Act mm -hmm. requests. So what this means is that, you know, in my case, I happen to be particularly interested in the FBI's relationship with uh, conservative organizations. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I began to file Freedom of Information Act requests on a whole variety of conservative organizations that, you know, for the most part, people just haven't filed FOIA requests about before, and so therefore the material hasn't come to light. Mm -hmm. um, so doing research there is a little bit different because you can't just go and sit down and have all of it there. You have to actually be rather proactive about finding it. Okay. Um, the other question, of course, is uh, redaction. Uh, which is to say crossing out. out the names of people, mm -hmm. um, and also declassification, which happens over time. So uh, by the very nature of the passage of time under our current laws, it means that there's always new material coming up, new material being released. Um, I think the last and really interesting thing that's happening is that uh, the generation of people who uh, knew Hoover in the 60s and 70s or who were officials with him, et cetera, many of those people have become quite elderly or have died uh, mm -hmm. over the last 40 years. And so their private collections have uh, also begun to come to light and have been gathered together in a serious way. For instance, uh, L. Patrick Gray, who was Hoover's successor at the FBI very briefly, uh, sort of between the time that Hoover died in 1972 and the time that uh, the kind of Watergate scandal uh, really began to emerge in 73 and 74. He's there in this very critical moment, and his son has actually gathered together a lot of his okay. papers um, and pulled together a pretty serious okay. collection that hasn't been very widely used. So what if some of the things that you were able to find that you know no one has seen before, for instance, or anything in particular that was surprising that you came across? Right. Well, in terms of some of the documents about um, you know, Hoover's relationship with, uh, with important conservative figures, the conservative movement, I think you can see um, a real set of kind of serious ideological back and forth that's going on there. Um, I think we tend to have an image of Hoover as being kind of um, a rogue figure who's getting what he wants by blackmailing people, right? And I mean, certainly this is, uh, to some degree at least, mm -hmm. part of what he did. But one of the things that I think that's interesting at looking at these, uh, these documents that haven't been studied a lot is to see what a careful architect he was about building a pretty widespread political grassroots base for the FBI through these uh, organizations. So everything from women's clubs to the American Legion to uh, more kind of overt, uh, overtly conservative uh, grassroots organizations. You can actually see um, his skills, I think, as a politician in mm -hmm. that sense um, in ways that aren't as often recognized. And then there are all sorts of, you know, just sort of interesting little anecdotes that come up uh, uh, in the papers as well, mm -hmm. um, ways that he deals with the press. I mean, particularly Hoover as a young man, you can see him sort of struggling in 1935 to invite certain reporters into the FBI, and then they betray him, and he denounces oh. them, and you can just, uh, so I think you actually get a very lively sense of who he is as a person, again, beyond this sort of mm -hmm. uh, uh, rather one-dimensional view that we've How would you characterize him as a person? person from, from your research that you've done so far? 
Right. Well, I think he uh, is a rigid person. <laughs> he is a person who likes to be in control. Um, and I think that those things are not probably terribly surprising to people. Um, but, you know, one of the things that is interesting is really thinking about him, uh, in fact, as a person, as someone who, as a young man, liked to go out to nightclubs and stay out late, um, as someone who is uh, cracking jokes with um, his friends within the FBI, someone who's actually having a, a real struggle about uh, what it means to be in this position of power is clinging very tightly to it in mm -hmm. certain ways. So I would say, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I like J. Edgar Hoover a mm -hmm. whole lot in the sense that I would, you know, want to sit down and enmesh my life with his, although I suppose my life is kind of enmeshed with yeah. his in a certain <laughs> way. Um, but I do feel more sort of empathetic to him, and I have seen him come alive as a person in a way, again, mm -hmm. that these these pictures of him as a as a pure kind of almost inhuman villain, I think, don't quite capture. Mm -hmm. One of the things you do talk about in the book, uh, I guess one would call it the more salacious kind of um, rumor or gossip, is his relationship with Clyde Tolson and um, the conjecture as to whether he is homosexual or not. What have you found along those lines? Anything? Well, I think we're probably never going to have an absolute smoking gun in the sense that we know, mm -hmm. you know, the most intimate details of what Hoover did in his own bedroom. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we don't know that about most people. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in some ways, that's not particularly unique. Uh, what's really interesting to me, particularly about Hoover and Tolson, is it's very clear that they were each other's uh, chief emotional supports that they maintained a 40-year relationship with each other, a kind of deeply loyal and intimate relationship, which I think it's not a stretch to imagine being sexual, though we have no uh, particularly uh, distinct evidence uh, about that. But what's been really striking to me, and I think the ways in which uh, the book will be sort of useful and talk about this in different ways, is just how public that relationship was. And I think people have an idea that to have a partnership like that, a partnership where many people openly kind of speculated that these men were having a homosexual relationship, that to have had that in the mid-century United States, you would have needed to be somehow deeply, deeply hidden. Um, and on the one hand, you can see this as a, as a hidden and closeted relationship. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they were a very public couple. I mean, you invited Edgar to dinner and you were also going to invite Clyde. And so they were accepted and functioned really as a social couple over the long term. And I think it kind of upends some of our contemporary binaries about, you know, there's straight and there's gay and there's no sort of other way to function socially. I think they were sort of a unique mm -hmm. uh, or interesting case study in that sense. But during that time period when they were so together and went out socially and everyone invited them together as a couple, almost like it was a marriage, it strikes me as somewhat hypocritical for him to then have behaved toward the gay world in the manner that he did. Will you be talking about that at all in your book? Absolutely, and this is one of the great, I mean, Hoover is, if, if he is anything, right, he is someone who is full of contradictions, uh, contradictions <laughs> right? And we can call them contradictions, yeah. we can call them hypocrisy, yeah. which uh, often is not inaccurate mm -hmm. either. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, Hoover is certainly one of the architects of what is now described as the Lavender Scare, right, which sort mm -hmm. of parallels uh, the Red Scare, particularly in the 40s and 50s, in which uh, homosexuality is understood to be a national security threat. And so it's a very perplexing situation. Here is a man that many people understand to uh, at least be suggestively homosexual, right, who is militantly also cracking down on homosexuals. And so I think we have to understand this both as, as a, a kind of defense of his own position, um, and I think more interestingly, see the ways in which he crafts the FBI as a kind of defense against these accusations in part, right? A very, very masculine, kind of male-centered institution, right? And, and uh, uh, with a, uh, a sort of very interesting and distinct public image, this image of uh, the G-man that emerges in this moment, I think one of the things that's gonna be uh, really fun to play with mm -hmm. in, the, in the final version of the book are these, these representations of a certain kind of masculinity, how people understood that then um, and how we wanna understand mm -hmm. it now. How do you think that Hoover, in that span of 50 years, shaped the American political culture? Well, I think Hoover did a couple of things. Uh, so one thing is that he, though we tend to, as I said, again, think of him as this kind of rogue figure, mm -hmm. um, you know, in many ways he is adopting what are the essential kind of liberal techniques of state building, e government efficiency, mm -hmm. kind of insulating um, administrative uh, managers and bureaucrats from the evil influences of politics. All of these things which often progressives embraced, um, which certainly uh, the New Deal embraced in many ways, the strengthening of the federal government. Um, all of these things that we tend to think of as being somehow inherently liberal or progressive or often framed in that way in the way we talk about American politics, uh, he sort of takes these tools of state building and uses them to build uh, a very different part of, uh, of the American state and of the American government. So I think he's very interesting as a kind of bureaucratic architect and mm -hmm. as, a, as a kind of case study in that. Um, in terms of his political influence, I do think that he uh, was one of the most important people, certainly within the government itself, in sort of containing and limiting uh, the left in the 20th century. Um, and I think in some ways this is one of the biggest messages of the book is, as I said, I talk about him as a conservative who held a whole lot of government power in an age when we tend to think of uh, as the age of liberalism, mm -hmm. right? This kind of mid-century moment. Um, and one of the things that he spent a lot of his life doing is watching and policing kind of radical movements on the left. And I think in the end, um, kind of containing and shaping American culture, both through uh, kind of policing the left and through very overtly promoting um, a kind of conservative anti-communist message that had great influence and resonance in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay, and your book will be out in? Uh, 2014 to okay. 15, so I have a few more years of working well, on it. Well, we will certainly watch for that because I think it will be a very interesting read. Thank you so much for being here today with us and sharing some of your work. Great, thanks Marilyn.
For more information about Professor Gage and her research, please visit our website at yale.edu slash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale. <laughs>